Hi, this is Joe Shannon. I'm a lawyer, a husband, a father of six kids, and I also uh, host a podcast called Opening Statement with Joe Shannon. Please consider listening to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple, and any other folks that host podcasts. Just Google Joe Shannon and podcast and you'll find it. I hope you enjoyed the show. The uh, administrative staff working from there as well. Uh, we've decided that we're not going to check mail even at this point at the at that building because most things are available by email. We've been alerting all of the opposing counsel uh, of this. We've been uh, making sure that we have all clients aware of how we're operating and we're just doing our best to keep people isolated. Well, safety first uh, for your team sounds like uh, the approach that we're doing here up here in Chicago. We all of us are working remotely and we had had them set up to, to have a home office. And, uh, you know, I, I was, I tell our clients that 98 or 99% of what we do for them comes outside the courtroom. So we're not missing a beat, but, um, this is a good challenge, uh, for the new reality for your team, isn't it? It is, it is. And what you mentioned about 98% not being done in the courtroom is quite true. I mean, that's where we are, uh, trying to get an advantage right now is there's a lot of things that we can't do because of this, but that's freed up time to get prepared so we can hit the ground running as soon as this lifts. In particular, we're getting all of our uh, jury charges for all of our cases done. We're getting all of our um, getting all of our, our motions in limine, getting the pretrial orders basically all of the stuff that puts our cases in a posture to be ready to go for trial so that we can tee them all up right after the courts reopen. You know, I, um, I can't tell you how um, thrilled I am to, to be able to talk to you and to, to share for people that don't know, don't know Ben Broadhead, Broadhead um, from Atlanta, Georgia, you are listening to it and he'll be, he's a pretty humble guy. He'll probably dispute me. You're listening to one of the best trialers in the country, and um, I wanted to, to kind of um, get some background on you, Ben. I know it's uh, uh, it's been a, a, a quite a road for you, um, and I wanted to kind of get into introducing who you are as a person. Um, first of all, could you introduce folks as to where you were born and where you, where you grew up? Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Atlanta, spent a little bit of time out in Colorado, uh, but then uh, all of their time has been in the Atlanta area with a uh, small stint away for law school uh, up in Boston. And so um, what part of Atlanta did you grow up in? Uh, always in, mostly in Cobb County. Right now we're in the uh, Fulton County area. Cobb County is a uh, uh, north, uh, north of the city of Atlanta, Marietta, Kennesaw area is what people around here would know. Uh, now we're in Atlanta, the city itself, but uh, most of the time was uh, spent in that uh, Kennesaw, Smyrna, uh, Marietta area. So where did you end up going to high school and college and all that? Yep, uh, attended 
uh, Campbell High School um, and uh, left there a little bit early and ended up uh, going into business for myself, doing a, uh, a couple of different ventures um, and then went to uh, Kennesaw State College. And after Kennesaw State, I was fortunate enough to uh, be allowed into Harvard. And so I went up to Harvard for law school and then came back down to Atlanta as soon as I could. Hold on a second here. So you went from uh, the fine institution of Kennesaw State College to Harvard Law School. How does that happen? Well, I had to have a, uh, I had had to do well in the classes. I did, uh, I carried a 4-0 in the, in Kennesaw and also uh, did well on the LSAT. And I think part of my background might've been appealing to them because I had, uh, uh, when I left high school, I uh, basically dropped out in my senior year and decided it was time to be on my own. So I uh, went out, started, started a couple of companies, uh, worked on those and uh, built those and then uh, had some success with that. And then when I went to undergrad, I went through uh, Kennesaw in uh, two years rather than the four years to get a, the four-year degree. So I was taking a lot of extra classes. And I think doing those extra things uh, probably helped me a lot uh, in, as far as getting in. What kind of businesses are we talking about? Well, uh, one of the things, <laughs> actually a funny one, is uh, started out uh, doing door-to-door sales actually did uh, um, the most ridiculous product you could ever imagine, uh, but for some reason it would sell, was a uh, vibrating massage pillow that you would go into a, a business, you'd carry this, you'd tuck it behind your arm so nobody could see it, and then you'd walk in to whoever's at the, the front of it and said that, uh, you know, hey, I was just showing this to some people next door, and they said that you might like to see it also, and you asked them to lean up and you set it behind their back, they'd lean back on it, it would start vibrating, they'd either jump, or they would uh, say they enjoyed it, they liked it, and then sell those door-to-door to people. Uh, from there, uh, went uh, into um, a doing leasing, equipment leasing. I had a couple of friends who were doing this, and uh, they showed me what they were doing, and so I did that. This was back at a time in the 80s when we were laying a uh, lot of fiber optic cable so some machines that were out there were uh ditch witch trenching machines and we would go to the, we'd have people uh from the salespeople who were selling the machines who couldn't get uh their customers qualified to buy the machines because the customers uh didn't have any uh, financials or anything like that these were you know, just regular construction guys who wanted to buy a uh, trenching machine so they could lay cable. And so what I did was, is I would go work with those clients. They'd bring me a box of receipts and uh, some uh, uh, bank account statements and such. And I would put together uh, basically a set of financial statements for them. And, you know, I was 18 at the time. And so I had had some time to learn how to do this. It was just uh, basically uh, look up how to put things in a proper format for financial statements. And once I would do that, then I would get together with uh, various lenders 
um, you know, there are different banks, different uh, corporate lenders that would allow you to uh, place the uh, lease with that corporate lender, and then they would pay you a, a percentage of the deal. And so I built the company from that. Uh, and then there were, there were a few others in there as well. Wow. I, you know, I, I can't imagine as an 18 year old going door to door selling uh, a massage pillow. How, how did you get the guts to, to go door to door to do that? Um, I guess that's an interesting, interesting thing. Yeah. I mean, that probably helped me a lot in law as well, because I uh, didn't really have a choice. I mean, I was on my own at that point. And, uh, you know, it was a it was a job. It was something I could make money at. And, you know, it was uh, disconcerting at first to just walk in somewhere that they would know you wouldn't you would know they wouldn't want you in there, but uh, <laughs> to walk in there and do it. And uh, that you get used to it after a while. And I think that probably did help with having a lack of fear of the courtroom. Yeah, you know, um, when I when I talk to really good trial lawyers, um, a lot of them have come from uh, backgrounds where they were forced to really be in an uncomfortable situation and meet people as they were and be able to talk to people eye to eye and to have them understand the, the situation they're in. And it sounds to me like the beginning of your, your, your work as a trial or one of the most effective trial lawyers that I know started out when you were selling door to door pillows. Yeah, actually it, it, it really did. I mean, anything that was sales at that point, um, you know, and I've sold cars and sold whatever. Um, and the jury really is, not much different. Okay. It's a, uh, you know, one way to look at it is 12 American consumers who need to be sold a product. And you've got somebody on the other side trying to sell them a different product. You're trying to sell them a, the case that you see, the other side is trying to sell them the case they see. And if you can go through the sales techniques to make sure they understand the truth of your side and uh, what is the reason why they should be buying your side of the story, then it works out if you look at it in a sales sort of uh, way. You know, one of the one of the key parts of my practice, and I'm sure it's yours, is that is case selection. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that um, getting back to your comparison there to sales, I want to be able to only take cases that merit having a, a jury there. Uh, that is so important that a jury will want to help out our client, want to, to see the justice that needs to be done. And um, so that I'm not selling a, uh, any sort of inferior product. But the, but the number one thing that, that I always think about, and I, I don't know if you were on full commission when you were selling those vibrating pillows, but you know, I'm a hundred percent commission uh, person and, I want to sell. I want to sell a great product. I don't want to sell something that's not true. So why why would I put a jury through that? Well, and and that that's absolutely correct. But sometimes we run into the cases where we take them where we we absolutely believe our side. 
we absolutely are on the right side or we won't take the case. That's one good thing that uh, comes with time in the industry is you don't have to take a case you don't believe in. But um, we will take cases that sometimes have challenges that others uh, would shy away from. And we've had that happen multiple times. We had a case recently in Georgia that was a uh, motorcycle crash. crash. And that case started out with uh, a client, uh, you know, we're working for his family, but the facts of the case were that uh, there were multiple witnesses who saw a motorcyclist at night wearing uh, all black on a black motorcycle uh, take off, drive at a high rate of speed, 80 to 100 miles an hour, they claimed, and uh, crash into a car that had turned left in front of him. And the, the three witnesses said that he was speeding, nothing the car could do. The car said that she didn't see him, which is common in a motorcycle case. And uh, the police officer who came to the scene wrote it up as the motorcyclist's fault. And all of this looked um, really bad, like it's the motorcyclist's fault. But then the more that we looked into it, we saw that, no, absolutely not. This is not his fault. This was the car's fault for turning left. The car is the one who blocked the road. And it took us multiple uh, mock trials where we would actually present the case to just individuals who would be of a similar uh, socioeconomic and, uh, I guess, cultural background is what, what we would expect our jurors to be of. And after presenting it many times, we finally found out how to present the case properly so we could show the truth of it and get the jury on board. And with that case, uh, the jury did come back and put 3% fault on uh, our motorcyclist, but they put 97% fault on the left turning driver. And so that was a case that really looked like um, a bad product, but was actually one where we were absolutely right and we were absolutely on the right side and we should have won, but it was a, it was a fight and they're going to fight it still. They're going to take it up on appeals. They're going to try to do whatever they can to get it reversed. And we're just going to keep on fighting. Well, you know what? I, I think that's a really good lesson for, lawyers out there uh, a number of my cases that, that we've taken in, in uh, at our firm three or four other law firms have turned down uh, because my feeling is is that when we get the case in we want to do a really great investigation to find out what we know what the product's about and a lot of times on a surface a case like you're talking about there doesn't seem like there's much but after investigation like you guys did you found out that hey the one that caused this, the, the primary cause of this is a left turning person that blocked the, the right away for the for the driver. And there's, uh, you know, there's no eyewitnesses that actually saw the person driving at the time of the crash. Is that right? Well, actually, it was um, what we were able to do is we we're able to challenge the witnesses uh, versions of it. And this is this is technical law stuff. I don't know if your audience uh, likes the the ins and outs of going into proximate cause arguments, but uh, this was one where the witnesses all um, said that they saw it 
right as it happened. It was at night, though. So since the motorcycle was way ahead of them, they wouldn't have been able to judge speed. And so we, we spent a lot of time attacking how the witnesses, even though they could see the motorcyclist, uh, how they could not judge his speed because it's a single taillight. And you don't have any frame of reference from a um, uh, conspicuity standpoint. What you, the reason you have taillights spread out on the outside corners of a vehicle is because you can tell how they're moving, you know, closer together or farther apart, depending on whether you're gaining or, uh, you know, falling behind the vehicle. And your brain is able to take that information and assess how quickly you're gaining on someone because of the two taillights. Uh, when you have one taillight, your brain can't do that. Somebody's 200 feet ahead of you. There's no way you can tell how fast they're going. And we were able to go through um, a lot of the the information. I mean, we went through. Um, I'm thinking about all the pieces of it. Had a had a coroner look at this. The extent of the injuries. Our client uh, he passed away during surgery about three hours after the collision. And if he would have been going 80 to 100 at the time of impact, um, there's. You, you, that's not survivable. That's instantaneously you, you die at some speed like that. Uh, we got from jurors that they only saw a flash of the brake light, which means there wouldn't have been enough time for it to actually show any reduction in speed, um, meaning that the impact speed would have been the same speed he was traveling before impact uh, and not a product of him putting on a lot of braking. We had a reconstructionist who uh, was able to say that the motorcyclist would have been going at the speed limit of 55 at the time of impact had a coroner like i was mentioning before i mentioned the coroner um the point is if you would have had an impact with a speed differential of 80 miles an hour um there would have been a ruptured aorta and uh more internal injuries than there were but there weren't all of these things led to that the three eyewitnesses just simply had it wrong it could have been that the motorcyclist accelerated away from traffic as anybody who rides would know is a good idea. You want to get away from other vehicles because other vehicles are, you know, dangerous to you. Um, so it could have been that he just accelerated quickly to get away from people and then slowed back down. And, uh, you know, he's going 55 and this woman turns in front of it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I guess the, the, the moral of that story is it does really matter who you hire as your lawyer, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, there, there were, once again, there were three or four firms who, who turned down this case. Um, the, the insurance company, to give you an idea, the insurance company had a zero offer on the table up until uh, a couple months before trial. They weren't willing to offer anything because they were sure that it was the motorcyclist who was at fault. And they finally offered their policy limits of $100,000 uh, just before, uh, you know, a couple months before trial. And at that point, we knew we were going to win the case. And we knew we were going to win it uh, substantially. Well, so we, of course, told if them If I no. can interrupt you, um, are you at liberty to tell our listeners what the verdict was there? Yeah, it's a public verdict. It was for $33 million. And we should be getting... Uh, additional attorney's fees on top of that. Uh, we've asked the court to 
uh, place an additional $13 million of attorney's fees on that, which would take us up to 46. Um, and then with interest, we'll probably be over 50 once the, uh, the case comes back from the Court of Appeals, uh, provided that the Court of Appeals goes in our favor. And uh, in Georgia, at least, the Court of Appeals has started coming out with some interesting rulings lately where they don't really care about whether objections have been preserved and they just will reverse a case uh, regardless of whether objections have been preserved. So we have that that we have to go through, but we, we know there was nothing reversible in the case. So it should put us around uh, around 50 plus once it's done. Uh, so let me get this straight here. Two months before the case uh, was tried, there was a zero offer. And then um, let, let me ask you this question. So uh, this driver who turned left, uh, did you ever make an attempt to help the insurance company do the right thing at the beginning of the case when you got the case? Uh, many, many times. <laughs> Tell we, us about uh, that. We told, yeah, well, th the way that this, this works is, is that insurance companies are supposed to protect their insureds. Now, this, this woman who turned left in front of our client, um, she was being reckless. She shouldn't have turned left in front of him. She should have paid better attention. Um, but it wasn't intentional. She didn't try to kill him. She didn't try to have this happen. And she certainly would have preferred for this collision never to have happened. And she had insurance that was supposed to protect her if something like this happens. But her insurance company, when it was given an opportunity to pay its policy limits on a wrongful death case, her insurance company said, no, we're just not going to pay. Now, what happens is um, she probably would have been fine with the insurance company paying. She just wanted to be protected. Uh, my clients would have wanted the closure, um, would have accepted the $100,000 policy limits, uh, and the case would have resolved long ago if they were willing to pay. But now what's happened is, since the insurance company did not pay, um, we had to take it forward, now we have a verdict. And the question becomes, who is going to be on the hook for that verdict? It's not a question of whether or not the verdict is going to be there. I mean, the, the verdict's gonna be there. Uh, somebody's gonna have to pay it. Either the other driver is gonna have to pay it or the insurance company's gonna have to pay it. And this brings us into uh, an area that we handle a lot of, which is sometimes called uh, bad faith insurance law or negligent failure to settle, um, where an insurance company fails to protect its insured when it should have protected its insured. And so um, what, what technically happens is, is the other driver would have a claim against her insurance company, where she would say that the insurance company should have protected her failed to protect her, therefore it needs to cover the entire verdict. And um, I think this is one of those cases where it's very proper because the insurance company decided to take a gamble. And it tried to take a gamble on how a uh, wrongful death case would go with a left-turning driver and a you know super nice person, super nice family who were just devastated by this collision. And they took this gamble. Well, if they want to gamble, that's fine, but they just need to gamble with their own money. And so the insurance company is 
really when this is all said and done, the insurance company is going to be the one who takes care of the of the judgment because when they chose to gamble, um, the courts are going to say that you know they didn't have a choice to gamble with somebody else's money. You got to you got to pay your own gambling debts. Wow, what a, what what a uh, I'm I'm sitting there listening to that, and I and I'm you said that you give them many opportunities to try and resolve the case. I'm wondering if they're looking at their claim file now and and trying to figure out why they didn't resolve the case a long time ago. Um, because they didn't believe um, they they were drinking their own Kool Aid. I mean, it was really kind of funny. We the the offer was made first offer was made years earlier. Okay, and actually, I think multiple, like I said, multiple firms had looked at the case and they had uh, each one of them got turned down same way as we did at first. Each one of the other firms had contacted the insurance carrier, said that, you know, we want to resolve this. The insurance carrier says, no, it's a motorcyclist's fault and they're not going to pay. And it came to us. We went through it, figured out what had happened, explained it all point by point to the insurance company in a very detailed letter saying why the car was at fault, what the speeds were involved, how what the timing was, how much time uh, our motorcyclist would have had to um, recognize and react to the left-turning vehicle. All of these factors we put into the initial letter. It, it, was, it was interesting when I went back and I looked at the initial letter after trial. I mean, it was almost identical to my closing. It had everything laid out just like we did at the case and so they had all of this information they had full information and they just chose not to believe it they chose to go with um, their own theory of what would happen rather than go with the um, the physical evidence the science the facts that were really indisputable they wanted to go with no we just don't want to pay you know and I, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by that, that verdict, and, and uh, I'm rooting for you from the sidelines on that. But let's, let's switch gears now. I want to know how a guy that was a full commission door-to-door salesman when he was 18 years old ends up being a guy that gets verdicts for $30, $40, 50000000 million. How does that happen? Uh, a lot of work. <laughs> I mean, really, it's a, the, the whole thing comes down to a lot of work and it's, and it is a passion of mine. I mean, I, I think about this stuff pretty much nonstop. I also think that all the background has helped me. I've interacted with a lot of people who, um, are the normal jurors who, you know, that's, that's my background is with real people. You have a lot of these defense attorneys who, you know, they grew up in a fairly privileged background. They went to good schools the whole time. They didn't have to live in their car, let's say, uh, for some of the time that I did. Well, hold on a second. Uh, hold on a second. Have... You lived in your car? <clears throat> well, when I, when I left high school, I dropped out of high school and I had a uh, 67, uh, 66, I'm sorry, 66 Impala <laughs> that I bought from a couple of friends that was... Uh, uh, bought it for $90. And, uh, that was my home for about four or five months after I dropped out of high school. You're talking about the Impalas and, uh, that, that, that got the bed in the back for, uh, carrying around stuff. <laughs> no, no, no. That's the, uh, that's a different one, but the, uh, that's like a Ranchero or a, uh, El Camino. 
no, I'm talking about a an Impala is the is you know the four door sedan, <laughs> and uh, the uh, the friends they they bought this car, uh, planning on uh, taking out the back seat, putting in a curved couch and a wet bar, <laughs> and they were they were going to do all this stuff to it, and they got as far as cutting out the back seat, uh, but that's where that effort stopped. They had uh, they were going to do. Uh, their own body work on it, but they didn't understand how body work was done. So where the big, uh, big dents were on it, they filled it in with Bondo. They didn't pull the dents first and then put the thin layer of Bondo <laughs> on it to smooth it out. So it had stucco on the side of it. Um, the, um, they had lost the keys for it. So I had to take a fan switch out of a Camaro <laughs> and I had wired it with that where it had a, uh, you know, uh, high was start, medium was run, low was accessories, and off was off. And so had it set up with that, with that, you know, switch dangling down out from under the dash. Uh, and I, you know, I kind of understood losing keys, but they had also lost the steering wheel for the car. And I had to ask them, what do you, how do you lose a steering wheel? And they both just kind of gave me a blank stare. So I literally drove it to a uh, to a junkyard with a pair of ice grips on the uh, bolt coming out of the uh, uh, you know out of the steering column, and uh, bought a steering wheel for a dollar from the junkyard. Put the steering wheel on it, which made it a lot safer. Uh, bought a uh, radio for uh, a dollar also, and wired that from under the dash so that I could have the uh, a radio with a speaker just sitting on the the hump in the center and uh you know and that was uh, uh that was my 92 dollar investment that was home for uh for a few months after i left high school ben i've told you this over and over again the book must be written uh i don't know that it's that interesting of a book it's just kind of uh a collection of stupid stories i think but the stupid stories do do help understand what other people have gone through and are going through and you know what was important to me when I was struggling what's important to our clients when they're struggling and you know a lot of my uh, a lot of my bad experiences were self-imposed where I made some stupid decisions and had to pay for them and uh, you know you just you learn from that but a lot of our clients you know these are people who literally are doing nothing wrong, haven't made any choice, and somebody else's negligence is what puts them in this bad situation. And, you know, understanding what it's like to be in a bad situation, to not know where the next meal is coming from, um, helps you gain an understanding of what a client's going through who might have, I mean, you know, you don't know how often this is that you get a client who they saved up you know, a couple thousand dollars to put a down payment on a car, they get a car and they're upside down on it. They owe more than they, they, uh, than the car is worth, but it is their car. It gets them to their job and they're rocking along doing fine. Somebody comes in, totals their car, injures them. They don't have the money and savings to buy another car. Um, they have an insurance company who tries to uh, decline the case, tell them, no, we're not going to pay you anything or we're not going to pay you enough or we're certainly not going to pay enough to pay off the car. And so they've got a debt from the car. 
they have no transportation, they can't get to their job. So they lose their job, they're injured, they're trying to get medical treatment, they can't pay for their health insurance, so they lose their health insurance, they don't have money coming in from the job that they've lost because of this, and they can't pay their rent. And here they are uh, in this horrible downward spiral where they have nothing and are on the verge of homelessness or, you know, on literal homelessness, all because they happen to be sitting at the wrong stoplight. And this is something that if you if you have experienced some of these things, it, it lets you understand what these people are going through. And it gives you that real passion and desire to try to help get them out. Because, I mean, I've lived it. I know what it's like. And I've also found ways to, you know, work up from there. And so some of it's giving those clients strategies, how to deal with things the best they can until the case comes through. Um how to uh, go about getting the treatment that they need, how to go about, uh, you know, making ends meet when it doesn't look like it's possible. And so we'll, we'll do a lot to try to help the clients get by when um, they're in these, these horrible situations. So tell me, tell me what it was like for, for a, a kid from Georgia. Did, did you drive that uh, Impala up to, uh, Massachusetts? No, or what's no, it, what, I, how'd you get up there? Um, well, the uh, what I did in college down here uh, was I would uh, go to auctions and I would buy cars and sell the, you know, I'd fix them and sell them. I, I got I got good at doing, uh, you know, auto work. And so there were a couple auctions in Georgia. I could go into the auction. I would buy uh, an old car and you know, generally I'd look for something that had a, uh, some sort of mechanical problem that would kill the value, but I'd know how to fix it and fix it and resell it. And so I would buy and sell cars to get through, um, school. And so, uh, once I, you know, left, left college, you know, I had my, uh, couch and a bed and end table and a coffee table and, uh, loaded those up in a small U-Haul and went up to, uh, Boston for law school. And then, uh, Two years in college, did you spend the whole three years at law school or did, you, did that take a year? Yeah, they, would, they wouldn't let you accelerate it. <laughs> uh, uh, they were, uh, Harvard was pretty, pretty uh, strict about that. And then when you, when you got out of Harvard, t- just, just tell us about your, your law practice. What, what did that consist of? Well, I went, um, first job out of law school, well, actually in, in law school, I did a uh, internship with the Fulton County Public Defender's Office. Uh, I wanted to, once again, be in a, uh, you know, sort of with real people who needed real help. <laughs> and so I did that uh, and got a taste of that. But then I went to a large international firm, uh, Paul Hastings, Stofsky and Walker in Atlanta. They had an Atlanta office at that time and uh, went there. I was planning on being there a minimum of three years. And uh, so when I started, I was like, this is not for me being a junior associate and, um, you know, answering to people at all. (laughs) Um, And and then I got to the point where I thought, okay, well, let's just make it one year. If I can make it through one year, that's good. And then at that point, I was like, well, I don't know that I'm going to learn more in one year than the four months that I've already been here. And so (laughs) I I left and hung out a shingle at that point. 
and, uh, you know, went out to do personal injury law. And uh, what year was that? Started in February of 98. Okay. So for 22 years, Correct. you've been your own boss. And uh, how, how's that, how's that law firm experience worked out it's for you? It's a lot better being my own boss. I'm, I'm only semi my own boss. I have a, uh, uh, she's not an attorney, so I can't call her a partner, but she runs the business side of it. Her name is Holly Clark. She is uh, the, the person she's been with me for 20 of those 22 years. And she has uh, made it where all I have to do is practice law. So she handles all of the, uh, you know, I mean, a law firm is a business and most lawyers don't recognize this about themselves, but most attorneys aren't, aren't really great business people, you know? And so (laughs) in running it as a business, she handles all of the business side of it and I handle the law side of it. And then she does help out on some of the law stuff as well, but, but it's, that made a big difference uh, having her run it. So I can't say I'm totally uh, self-employed because she does kind of order me around a bit. That's great. That's great. And then, so Holly's been running the business side for 20 years. You've been doing the, tell me just, we're going to wrap this up pretty quick here. I just wanted, you know, you told us some great personal stuff. I'll never forget the thought or the vision of you driving to the, uh, to the dump to get uh, the the new steering wheel with the the pliers or whatever. That's, that's something else. How about some, how about a a defining moment? You've had a lot of them because I look at your verdicts and I'm like, how does the guy do this? But give us a defining moment in your, in your career for your, your profession, as far as uh, somebody you've represented. You know, it might be something that would never be, out there that would matter as much um but it was kind of early on and uh that just kind of it was almost like realizing that hey you can put in effort and you can win something that doesn't look winnable okay and this is gonna sound this is not a this is not a big case this was a case that ultimately turned out to be a seventy-five thousand dollar case but it was a case where uh, my client, uh, was an older gentleman. He had gotten into a collision at an intersection, uh, where he was accused of running a light and, uh, the, uh, he had a traffic ticket and the traffic ticket was in city of Atlanta, uh, was being, was being challenged in city of Atlanta and the collision had happened in DeKalb County. Now this courthouse was physically situated in uh, Fulton County, but the crash happened in DeKalb. So I needed to get him out of the ticket because the insurance company was going to say, well, if he gets convicted of the ticket, obviously it's his fault and uh, they're not going to pay anything. So I went and started researching, trying to come up with anything that I could come up with. And I went down to the courthouse and I found out, uh, hadn't done one of these before, found out that uh, the prosecutor, when the prosecutor's not there, uh, the judge gets to act as both the prosecutor and the judge, which did not seem really <laughs> fair, in, in my opinion, um, because the, prosecutor, the, the judge is making arguments to herself and she seemed to believe them. And so, <laughs> you know, she would ask, she asked the officer, you know, what his investigation showed. And um, I was trying to 
I, I cross-examined the officer about this, that he wasn't there. He didn't see it. And he said, yeah, but he could tell from, you know, the positions of the vehicles, what had happened and so forth. And, um, and then uh, I uh, said that they went through a, a couple of things with that officer, didn't go anywhere, but I felt okay about it. And then I thought that I'd be able to get out because he didn't have, you know, enough firsthand knowledge. And they said, is there anybody else here? And this person raises their hand. They said, who are you? So I was a witness. I was subpoenaed. And this guy gets up there and he says, yeah, I was stopped at the red light. And he literally said, I remember this from, you know, 18, 19, 20 years ago. Uh, he, he literally says, uh, yeah, I was sitting here stopped at a, at a red light and this other car was coming through. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this guy just comes through and hits him, runs the red light. I'm like, oh, that didn't go well. Uh, so, but I had done, I'd done some more research and I started to say, well, your honor, I want to object to this because, uh, I want to, I want to move for a directed verdict. I got her to rest her case, the judge to rest her own case. Um, and, uh, said that I want to move for a directed verdict. She says, why do you want to move for a directed verdict? And she was almost like snapping her fingers and bobbing her head as she was doing that. And the other attorneys there who were much more experienced and been around a long time. They were kind of snickering at me trying to move for a directed verdict. And uh, I said, well, you know, an element of this case is you have to prove venue. And there wasn't any proof of venue. And she said, you know, it's city of Atlanta. It happened in city of Atlanta. That's venue. I said, well, but proof wasn't offered. And she said, we know where it happened. And the other attorneys in the room, and it was a lot of them, they were kind of laughing at me. And I said, well, your honor, I want to bring up something from the Constitution. The Constitution says that you have a right to have your criminal trial in the county in which the crime is alleged to have occurred. And the crime here occurred uh, in DeKalb County, city of Atlanta. And this building is physically situated in Fulton County. And the uh, judge said, that doesn't matter. It's city of Atlanta. People still laughing. And I pulled out a case and I said, Your Honor, I want to direct you to King v. State from, uh, you know, maybe 100 years earlier. And I said that uh, I, you know, based on this case, Supreme Court of Georgia, it upholds that it's got to be physically in the same one. And I pulled out a case and I handed it to the judge and all of the people who were snickering. They stopped snickering. They're just kind of looking, saying, wait, what's going on here? And they see the the uh, the judge looking grumpier and grumpier as she's reading it. And my client was old and confused. He was in his late seventies. He was not really that much with it. And she looks down from the bench at me and she says, counselor, there comes a time when people should not be driving anymore. I think your client is at that point where he should not be driving anymore. And if I had venue in this case, I would be finding him guilty, but apparently I don't have venue, so I have to dismiss. And all those other lawyers started scrambling around, looking through all their stuff, trying to figure out, you know, what they had been missing and if they had anything that they could do with their cases on that. But this was something where it was a, a it was a, a traffic ticket. It was a nothing traffic ticket on a relatively small case that I probably put in you know, a hundred hours of work on trying to figure out how is there a way to win this? 
and found it and it worked, which gave me that motivation to realize if I'm on the right side of a case, I need to find a way to put in the effort, to put in the research, to put in the care that's necessary, and it can be won. Wow. I, I love that story. I, um, I tell that to my guys, uh, you know, and, and the folks that work here, I tell them, Hey, listen, there's an answer out there. There's an, we're on the right side. Let's go find it. I, that is just a great, and it's, and it's true. I, I, uh, uh, I love that story. I like that's the defining moment. That was about yeah, 20 years yeah, ago. Absolutely. huh? And, uh, it was a, it was a long time ago and I hadn't really thought of that as a defining moment until you, you brought that up. And then it just crossed my mind that that was very early on in the career that made me realize, okay, it is possible to win things when people think it's impossible. That's great. Well, this is a guy that makes the impossible possible, Ben Broadhead. And uh, in the Atlanta area, if you're looking for him, just Google Ben Broadhead. That's B-R-O-A-D-H-E-A-D. Fellow that was living in his Impala while he was in high school, going selling pillows door to door, and is now probably one of the finest trial lawyers in the USA. Thank you so much for joining us, Ben, and I'm hopeful that you'll come back and, and tell us some, some more great stories down the road, especially about I want to find out how it ends up in the appellate sure court thing. with that case. Yeah, Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Take care, Ben. Thank you for listening to the opening statement with Joe Shannon. You can find us on the internet at shannonlawgroup.com or telephone our office at 312-578-9501. Have a terrific day.